Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, as you're turning there, I just thought as we were singing those songs, man, what a precursor to Easter. And uh, that just felt like Easter. Way is what every Sunday should feel like. Why celebrate uh, the Lord's Day? Resurrection Sunday is a perpetual reminder of what we do every single Sunday. We celebrate the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm also um, really excited that on the Christian calendar, we do have this opportunity once a year to really focus our attention on uh, the resurrection message, on the death and resurrection, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And I just want to encourage you, this is just an additional plug to um, invite people to come out to the Easter service. We know this as Christians that um, there are many people who will never step into a church on most Sundays, on most days of the year, but on Easter, for some reason, Easter and Christmas tend to be the two um, holidays that people would be willing, if they're invited, to come and to hear the gospel message. So I just want to encourage you, um, be praying about that. Be praying specifically about who it is that you want to invite, who you need to invite, and then trust the Lord will work uh, in their hearts and also in yours to give you courage to make that invite. I want to by reading the text this morning, and I'm going to back up to what we looked at last week in Romans chapter 7. So we're going to begin at verse 7. I'm going to read all the way through verse 25. Our text this morning that we're paying attention to, that we're diving into, is going to be verses 13 through 25, but let's get the context. Let's read it together. Here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says this, "'What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin.'" For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here's our text for this morning. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, But I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh." For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law then that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I mentioned last week that Romans 7 is a a highly debated text, and the key debated issue in this text is who exactly is Paul speaking about? Who is the me? Who is this I that Paul keeps referring to? And I won't go into too much detail. I think I covered most of that last week. But I want you to know that there is increased tension and debate when it comes to this particular section of Romans chapter 7. Even if you land where we landed last week, that the my, or the me, excuse me, or the I that Paul is talking about in the previous verses is Paul himself predominantly with a universal kind of perspective about humanity, there is a more intense debate about Paul right now in Romans 7, 13 through 25. There's a longstanding debate as what we do as to see who, as to what this section is referring to. And by the way, there's lots of different views But the views really boil down to two views, and I just want to kind of cover those for you very quickly this morning. Here's the question. Is Paul here pretending to be an unconverted person? Is this Paul, in other words, still talking about himself in his past life as an unconverted Jew? And then is he therefore describing a person or a Jew that's with the law, that's under the law, and is struggling with the law before they're converted, before they're given a new heart? Okay, that's, that's the first kind of view or question. And there have been many, many evangelicals who have held this view. In fact, this was the dominant view of the early church fathers, In the first, at least from what we understand, 200 to about three or 400 um, after Christ, um, most of the church fathers thought that that was talking about an unconverted individual. And the reason they thought that predominantly was because of the way this person described their struggle with sin, described the nature of sin, the idea that they're sold as slaves to sin. And they they looked at this kind of language and said, there's no way this could be talking about, about a converted person a Christian, if you will. But the majority view over the last 2,000 years has been that this is talking about the converted person, a Christian person. This is, in other words, Paul describing his Christian life. And this is then, in other words, describing almost the normative struggle or battle that takes place in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ It's describing a person who has been born again, who has been given a new heart, made new by the Spirit of God, who has, by faith in Jesus Christ, received new life, that newness of life, has the Spirit of God dwelling within them, who is justified by faith, not by their own works, but is very aware of their flesh is very aware of their sinful nature and the battle that is the result of those things, those two things, the Spirit of God and this sin nature that still is present. So if you can put that in your mind, that the, the major question that's been debated is, is this a believer or an unbeliever? Is this a Christian or a non-Christian? 
I think Paul is speaking of the Christian experience. And, and I'll just tell you this, I've wrestled with this over the last few weeks, and I've honestly uh, flip-flopped back and forth as I've studied this. And here's why I say that. It's important to understand that the positions taken on this are legitimate evangelical Christian positions. They are held by mature followers of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, this is not a primary issue, okay? So if you disagree with my position on this, here's the good news. We don't have to be angry at each other about this, okay? We can still live in fellowship and in unity. We can still be members of the same church together. This is not a primary issue. This is not even a secondary issue. This is a tertiary issue. But listen to this. It is a very important issue to understand. And I want to give you a few reasons why I think this is talking about the Christian experience that I hope is helpful for you, because again, I want you to be able to engage with the Word of God. I want you to see how this intersects with your life. And if you're not a Christian here today, um, that's okay. I I hope you'll see that this text actually does intersect with your life as well. This is going to be incredibly important for you to understand, and we'll get to that in a moment. But let me make a a brief argument for you as to why this is speaking of the, the Christian experience. There's a few reasons. First, what takes place here is a shift in verb tenses. So, if you were with us last week, all the way through verse 7 through 12, Paul is speaking in the past tense, in the original language. He's using past tense verbs, and that indicates that he's describing a past struggle of his. But here, in verse 14 onward, Paul shifts to the present tense. So so in other words, it seems like now Paul is describing what's going on now as a believer, what he currently wrestles with, what he currently struggles with. I think that's one of the best arguments to understand Paul talking about his current experience. The arguments for for this is is very strong. And, And by the way, I think, too, if Paul was just speaking in the present tense of his pre-Christian days, think about this. Some people say, well, Paul is talking potentially still as an unbeliever here, and he's using the first person present tense, like, in other words, he's trying to kind of import himself back to that place. That's a legitimate perspective, but here's what I would say to that. If that's what Paul is doing, he's using the present tense to describe past experience before Christ, this doesn't seem to match any of the pre-conversion accounts of Paul that we have in the New Testament. It doesn't seem to line up. In other words, we never have a place in the New Testament where Paul is describing his life before Christ, and he's describing it as this kind of a struggle, this kind of an internal battle. In fact, everything we have indicates that Paul actually believed he was just fine. You can read his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Um, you can look elsewhere in Scriptures and see Paul describing his pre-conversion experience. And here's what he says about himself. As to the law of Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, here's what he says. Listen, blameless. In other words, if you look back at Paul's life before Christ, he actually believed he was doing what was right. He believed he was fine with God. He believed that there was no problem between him and God. There doesn't seem to be this indication that he has this internal struggle like this. Maybe you can offer this kind of an objection, and this is what some have offered as an objection. Well, what does Paul mean then in verse 14? Look at verse 14. What does Paul mean when he says this, that for we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, listen to this language, sold under sin. This is a great argument 
Because if you've been with us through Romans, you remember what Paul has done in Romans chapter 6, don't you? He's told us that we're no longer slaves to sin. Positionally, something has shifted and changed. He's made it clear that we're slaves to righteousness. We're slaves of God. So how now can he come to us and say, as Christians, that we're sold as slaves to sin? This is one of the better arguments on the other side of things. It seems to, in other words, contradict all of Romans chapter 6. But here's what I would say. Well, we cannot be positionally, this is so important, Christian, we cannot be positionally and permanently slaves to sin as we once were. It is not unreasonable to see Paul using this language here to describe the practical possibility of being temporarily enslaved to sin again, like a master, listen, temporarily getting a hold of someone that's not actually theirs. I'm going to show you evidence of this elsewhere in some of Paul's letters a little bit later in the sermon, but I just want you to have this in your mind. It's not unreasonable to think that Paul is saying, practically, we can almost again become like we're slaves to sin. Positionally, we're never slaves to sin. We're always slaves to God. We're owned by Him. We belong to Him. But practically, we can live in such a way as if we were actually slaves to sin. Paul warns us over and over in his letters about this idea. Don't present yourselves as slaves of sin, he says. Don't, like, don't live like you used to. Don't give yourself to the desires of the flesh. Think, think of churches like the church in Corinth or the church in Galatia. They did this. They presented themselves actually to the law, especially in, in Galatia, as if they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And Paul actually goes after them and rebukes them. I'll get to that again a little bit later. The idea here, it's not impossible that Paul is speaking about being temporarily sold into sin. Let me give you another reason here, okay? These things seem characteristic of a convert, of a Christian. I want to just really quickly tell you why I believe that. Listen to some of the language Paul uses here. He says this, I delight in the law in my inner being. Listen, unconverted people can't truly say that not to the depth of their soul, not to the depth of their inner being. He recognizes, another reason why I think this is a, is a believer, he recognizes indwelling sin. This is a truly a Christian assessment because the person who is not a Christian cannot actually see indwelling sin in them properly. They can't fully understand the depth of sin in them. They can't say like Paul, nothing good dwells in me. That is something that only a Christian, listen, enlightened and illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit can truly say with deep conviction. How can he say nothing good dwells in me? Well, he clarifies this. That is in my flesh. Again, we're going to get to that in a minute. Listen to this other reason. Paul anticipates being delivered. This is what Christians do. We anticipate a future date of deliverance from this struggle, from our sin, from our flesh. Here's another reason. Paul is thankful to God for his provision, and he's thankful to God through Jesus Christ. This is the sign of a believer. Not only that, look at verse 25 with me. He says this, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. As he sums up this entire argument, he comes back, listen, to this reality. He comes back to this. So I myself, Paul says, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see, he identifies this internal struggle that's going on. 
Now, let me remind you of the context of Romans really quickly as we get ready to dive in and pull this apart. Paul has gone through this book of Romans and he's been explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's, he's made it his goal to make it clear that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody's guilty before God. It doesn't matter your, your religious, your ethnic background. If you're a Jew or a, or a Gentile, you are guilty of breaking the law of God. God's law is given to show us God's perfection. He's holy, he's perfect, he is good. His law comes from his own character. It displays who he is. God's law shows us what is required of humanity. If we're going to live with God forever, we have to obey God's law perfectly. We must be perfect as he is perfect. But it also shows us, listen, that we have a massive problem that we cannot obey the law of God perfectly, that if we disobey it in just one area, one time, we die. The law exists to expose our sin. It exists to expose our total inability to save ourselves. And instead, it shows us that this happens so that everyone who ever lives and puts their faith in Jesus Christ can be made right with God He's been hammering us with this, this beautiful gospel reality that Jesus Christ was the only one who could fill the, fulfill the law of God perfectly, that Jesus Christ was the one who died under the curse of the law, taking our condemnation for our sin, that Jesus Christ rose victorious from the grave so that we could be justified because of his resurrection. We cannot be just, this is the message of Romans over and over in the first five chapters. We cannot be justified by the works of the law. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We cannot obey God's law and therefore get into God's good graces. We cannot, we cannot in any way, shape, or form earn our standing with God. We cannot earn eternal life. Everything we have earned by our own efforts is death. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You see, it must be a gift, salvation. And Paul says that you can't be justified by the works of the law so frequently that some people might argue, Paul, are you saying that the law is bad? That's what we looked at last week. Isn't the law the cause of all of this? And Paul said last week to us, no, by no means. The law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. The problem isn't a bad law. The problem is a sinful me. That's what Paul says. Say, okay, Paul, well, isn't this good law then responsible for my death? You see how the individual who, who's looking at the law and saying, okay, it's good, so then isn't that responsible for my death? And you know what Paul says here in verse 13? He says, no, you don't get it. You want to know what's responsible for your death? It's not the law, it's you, it's your sin. That's what verse 13 is saying. Did you catch that? This is so crucial. Look at the verse 13 again. It was sin producing death in me through what was good. Sin took the law and exploited the law. It took what was good and right, and it actually used that to show us how bad and ugly our sin is. In order that, look at what he says, sin might be shown to be sin. The whole point was that so you and me could see how bad sin really is and how sinful we really are. And just in case you think he hasn't hit it enough and through the commandment might become, uh, listen, this, this language is so potent, sinful beyond measure. Do, do you see what Paul is saying here? 
He's saying that if you understand the law, the purpose of the law says to each one of us, you are sinful beyond measure. You're, here's this, you're more sinful than you could possibly imagine. And here's what he does now. He takes this idea. He says, you want to know how I know how bad sin is? You want to know how I know and how we know how sinful we truly are? Even, even with a new heart and the indwelling presence of Spirit of God, listen, even with all of that, sin still has a massive grip in our lives. And if you don't understand how sinful you are and how great the power of sin is, listen, what you do is you set yourself up for defeat. We know this. Even now, as Christians, we we still experience the presence and power of sin in a way that will not allow us to find, listen, here's what Paul's point is, in a way that will not allow us to find any hope in the law, in ourselves, or anything else apart from God himself. You see, what Paul is saying here is this, the law is good, but it doesn't give us any ability to do good. The law is good, but it actually can't make us good. And he wants us to see that even in our present struggle. Your standing with God is never about your ability to obey God's law. Because the truth is, you can never obey it perfectly here and now. You never will. And we've looked at Romans chapter 7 um, through the lens of of questions. And and I'll just refresh your memory. In in verses 1 through 6, we ask this question. What is the relationship between the law and ourselves? And we saw that there's this marriage analogy. And here's the the response for our believers. We're dead. We're dead to that, and we're we're remarried to Jesus Christ, so to speak, figuratively speaking. The second question that we looked at last week was this. What is the relationship between the law and sin? How do those two things work? And here's the question that I want to pose to you today that will help guide us through this text. Here he answers this question. What is the relationship between sin and myself, especially as a believer? What's the relationship between me and sin? And what he tells us here is the relationship is like a war. It's like a war. There's a war within us that reveals that we are, we're divided in a sense. We struggle internally, and this I, this me, this person is actually a split in one sense. So why does this matter so much? What's the point of this? Well, let me tell you why this matters, why understanding this matters. Sometimes people object to Christianity. Maybe this has even been you or this is you today. They object to Christianity because they have the misconception that to be a Christian means that you have no sin. You just simply don't sin anymore. You don't struggle with sin. And so people will often come alongside Christians and say, like, well, you say you're a Christian. You say you love God. You say that God has saved you. But when I look at your life, I see that you still have sin in your life. I see that you fail. I mean, I see that you're not perfect. And you guys, you know the argument. It's the charge of hypocrisy, right? The way you live isn't matching what you say you believe. And so, therefore, the whole thing must be phony and fake, and I don't want any part of it. The charge of hypocrisy is one of the chief arguments against Christianity. And listen, church, that's a serious charge, by the way. And there's a a reason why we should fight to not be hypocrites, because it does damage our testimony and it does damage the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the reality is, listen, we always, we say this, right? Like, when people say, like, I I don't want to go to churches full of hypocrites, the answer from Christians is simply, hey, there's always room for one more. 
because we get what Paul says here. There's always a struggle between who God calls us to be and who we actually are in real time. And we're struggling to close that gap, but it is a very real struggle. It's a very real war. And Paul addresses principles here that help us make sense of this reality and this struggle and helps us even fight to close that gap. But listen, understanding this war within is about more than that, more than just the the apologetic influence of this and the evangelistic influence of this. It's about helping us reconcile the hypocrisy we often feel in our own hearts. And how do we wrestle through this tension? How, how do we live like this, right? How do, we, how do we live knowing, knowing what God calls us to, knowing who God has made us positionally, and then looking at what we do, even on a daily basis, as we struggle with sin and we continue to, to, to fall and fail? And how do, how do we not become so discouraged and so frustrated and so disappointed that we can't actually live the Christian life well? That's what this passage helps us address. It makes sense of the tension we experience. So what is the relationship between sin and myself? Well, I'm going to look at three things this morning. The war within us reminds us, reminds me, first of this, the indwelling sin of my flesh. It reminds me of the indwelling sin of my flesh. Now, I've read the entire passage, but what you'll notice is that Paul keeps kind of looping back to some of the same concepts and ideas, right? It's not this very linear, straightforward argument he's making. It's this battle. So he's like, he's going over here, and he's talking about this issue, and then he flips over here, he talks about this, and then he goes back over here, and then he goes back over here, and so here's what I want to do. Rather than marching through this passage kind of systematically or, or kind of, you know, logically, chronologically, what I want to do is I just want to pull together these different threads, And I want to show you first how he paints this picture of the indwelling sin of my flesh. And again, Paul is so personal here, and I think this gives us every reason to make this point personal for us. That's why the application, that's why the point says what it says, the indwelling presence, excuse me, the indwelling sin of my flesh. And by the way, if you're not a believer here today, you're still trapped in verses 7 through 12. You're still the person that the law is kind of going after. God's using the law to go after you, and he's trying to show you. Don't you understand how sinful you are? Don't you understand that you can't save yourself? Right? The law of God is intending to remove that ignorance of sin in your life. It's actually intended by God to remove the innocence of sin. It's actually going to excite sin in your life so that you realize how sinful you are, and it's trying to remove the illusion that you and God are okay but it wants to point you to the crossroads where you come to that place of brokenness before God where you can be rescued from your sin, you can be removed from the unwinnable war, and you can be brought into a war that's being waged right now that is a winnable war. Now, Paul has shown us the character and nature of sin. So what he's been doing... He even does that here, but there's one thing that he's left out in this discussion. He's left out the location of sin. Some people might have gotten the impression that sin is something outside of us. If you can kind of imagine this picture of sin standing outside of us, some people think like, well, I'm saved now. I'm a Christian. Therefore, sin's not in me. Sin's outside of me. Like sin's like this taskmaster that stands outside of us. You know, there's got this whip, like, like, come on, like do what I'm telling you to do. I'm coming to get you. And we're like, ah. As if like sin is disconnected from us. 
And we, we say things like this that demonstrate sometimes it's often how we think. We commit sin. Maybe we sin against somebody close to us, and we say things like this. Listen, I'm really sorry that really that, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. That's a way of justifying the reality of sin inside of us, and it prevents us from going to this place that makes us often feel very uncomfortable. We often don't like to say that sin is something that's actually inside of us. But Paul declares here emphatically that sin is in me. It is part of me. Look at with me at verse 14b. He says, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Look at verse 17. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Listen to this language. Look at verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Look at verse 20 at the last half there, but sin that dwells within me. Look at verse 22. Did you just catch the theme? Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Look at verse 25. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, he, he gives us this sense that sin is something that's actually within us. Paul uses the term here, flesh. Flesh is Paul's term for our fallen nature. It's a term that he, he uses to describe, in one sense, the, the divided human heart, that the sense that there is, there is a divide within us. Biblically speaking, the heart is mission control center. And it's a broad term that describes your mind, your will, and your emotions. We've talked about this often here. It's our decision-making center. It is the place where our passions and our affections and our desires reside. Paul is reminding us here, listen, that while we have a new heart with new desires and even new power and ability, we also have a divided heart at times. The I, the me, that person is split sometimes. Our passions don't always line up the way they should. The, the lingering part of our unredeemed humanness is still sinful. See, when we're saved, we're not all saved, okay? In the sense that all of us holistically we're given new life. We're forgiven for our sins. We're now not living under condemnation. We're set free from the power of sin. We're given a new ability. And yet at the same time, we are awaiting a day of future deliverance. There is more to come. There is better yet to experience. There is a day coming that we look forward to where we will no longer deal with the presence or power of sin in any way, shape, or form. But that day is not yet here. We live, in other words, if I can use this language, in the overlap of the ages, the already but not yet. And as we live between these two spaces, there's tension here that exists because we are a new creation in Christ, and yet sin still dwells within us. 1 Peter 2.11 says this, that sinful passions are waging war against our soul. This is to the Christian. And he says they must be fought against. So when he says flesh here, listen, he's not talking about the physical body. Some people have made the wrong distinction that somehow the physical body is bad and the spirit is good. It's a modern day form of Gnosticism. You know, and there's been some even in church history who have done this. And so what they do is they, you know, they flog their body 
right? Where they struggle with sin and they beat their body, literally beat their body, or they wear camel's hair underwear, which just sounds like a ridiculous idea. Okay, this is not a call to medieval monkery where we see the body as the problem, our flesh, our physical body, and if we could just you know, hurt ourselves enough, maybe that'll eradicate the internal desires that we struggle with that never works, it never has, and it never will. He's not talking about the physical body. He's talking about our sin nature as a whole. So while we are a new creation, a new man or a new woman, it's like we have this, this dead corpse still strapped to us. And some don't want to admit the power of indwelling sin. We want to believe that we're better than we actually are or that we're better than others. I love what C.S. Lewis says in this regard. He said this, it's common sense that the better a person is, the worse they see themselves. He says, he gives this illustration. He says, if you were to go ask Hitler, Hitler, are you good? He would say, yes, of course I am. And he says, if you went and asked Abraham Lincoln, are you good? He would say, by no means. Indwelling sin is in all of us. Here's what that means, Christian. Listen, your greatest enemy is not Satan. It's actually sin within you. It's sin within you. And sin can continue to have an alarming power in a Christian's life. And it's not to be trifled with. This is why we see real Christians not only struggling with real passions, but giving in to them and doing great damage to themselves and to others. Which is why he's calling us to fight. This is why he's calling us to actually go to battle. And you see, the believer's battle, this is what he wants us to see, the believer's battle with sin is strenuous and it is lifelong. And a failure to understand this will lead you to self-confidence. It will lead you to self-delusion. It will lead you to self-righteousness. And ultimately, it will lead you back to self-bondage. You can actually live like you did when you were positionally enslaved to sin and the law. I said that in the introduction. Galatians speaks to this. Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, and he writes to people who are saved, but they're living in the confidence of the flesh. They're not walking in the power of the Spirit. They're living as if it all depends upon them and their strength, and they could just obey the law. And here's what he says. Listen to Galatians 3, 1 through 3. Paul says this. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians. He rebukes them. He says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then listen to this. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's like you're saved by faith. Not by any work of your own. And you all of a sudden think that now you can make yourself right with God? Look at what he says in Galatians 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, listen to this, whose slaves you want to be once more? You see what he's saying? Though positionally we're slaves to God, practically we can act as if we're slaves to something else, sin and the law. He 
Even as Christians who now have the law of God written on their hearts and the Spirit of God dwelling within them, we can still revert back to a, listen, a gospel-less kind of growth, to a spiritless kind of striving, and to a Christless kind of Christianity. Where we strive to perform the works of the law apart from the power of the Spirit of God. Look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. And he goes on to say that he has not the ability, look at this in verse 18, I don't have, have, do have the ability to carry it out. I want to do what's good, but I don't have the ability. This is what happens when we live in the flesh, even as believers. This is the believer's attempt to obey in his own power or strength, and it's futile. The law of God is good, but relying upon human effort to fulfill the law, to obey the law, is hopeless. The indwelling sin of my flesh is in conflict with this second thought. Here, look at this, the internal desires of my heart. And this point might have well had just said, listen, the indwelling um, presence of the Spirit of God. Because that's what he's really getting at. You'll notice that he doesn't reference the Spirit of God directly in Romans chapter 7. That doesn't really come until Romans 8. But when he describes these internal desires, the wants, the inner being, what he's getting at here is the work of the Spirit in the Christian's heart, what the Spirit of God has done in their heart. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit is demonstrated in this text by the way that Paul esteems the law in a way that an unbeliever does not nor cannot do. What he draws our attention here to, listen, is this constant battle, this tension, this friction between what we are desiring and what we're actually doing, what we're loving and how we're living, our affections and our actions. Look at what he does in verse 14a. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual. The law is good. It's from God. It's, it's spiritual in nature. Look at verse 16. He says, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, when I sin and I feel convicted about it, I'm actually saying that the law is good. Look at verse, 16, or verse 18. He says in verse 18b, I have the desire to do what is right. Look at verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And throughout here, he keeps saying that I, I, I don't do what I want to do, and I do the very thing I hate. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I can't do it. I, I don't always do it, and I keep struggling back and forth. He sounds like a schizophrenic, doesn't he? And I'll admit, it's, it, it's deeply troubling. And he makes statements like this, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that lives in me. I want you to notice, though, that Paul, he says this kind of a statement, but then he takes full responsibility for his sins. I don't do what I want to do. I don't do what I know is right. He's taking full responsibility, while at the same time recognizing that there's some kind of distinction that needs to be made here. So what does he mean when he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that lives in me? What, what, what is he saying exactly? Here's what he's saying. He's saying this, that, that though he's taking full responsibility for his sins, he's also distancing himself from his sin in a sense that it no longer defines him and who he is. It's not in the truest sense who he is. 
It is something he does, but it's not fundamental to who he is now as a new creation in Christ. It's still a part of him, but it's no longer the totality of who he is. It used to be me, he says, as, as a whole. Well, that's what I did. I, I did evil as a whole. That's who I was. And if you're an unbeliever, this is what the law is trying to show you, that, that you, apart from the Spirit's work, are someone who does evil. You follow the desires of your flesh. You do not desire to actually follow God and obey him. You don't actually have the ability to do so. And God wants to take you from that place, and He wants to change you, but He wants you to understand that fundamentally, you are a sinner if you're not in Christ. You, you are fundamentally a sinner. You are defined by your sins, by the specific sins that you do, but you are just defined more, listen, more generally by the fact that you're simply a sinner. In other words, let me say this. The reason you sin is because who you are, you're a sinner. That's who you fundamentally are. And what you desperately need is God to come into your life. You need to turn your life over to him to lay it down before him. You need to repent of your sins and your sin. Uh, you need to declare, I am a sinner and I need a savior and I can't get you to you, God. Only you could come for me. Only you could pay for my sin. Only you could redeem me, rescue me, and restore me. Only you could do it. And if that happens in your life, if you humble yourself and you repent of your sins and you turn to Jesus Christ and you receive eternal life, here's what happens to you. Instantly, there is a shift in the position of who you are. You are no longer defined as a sinner. That's not the whole of who you are any longer. You are a saint. You are a child of God. You are adopted into his family. You are loved and accepted. You are embraced. You are redeemed. You are restored. You are recreated. This is who you now are if you're in Christ Jesus. And instead of trying to change yourself and fix yourself, God says, come to me and let me fix you. From the inside out, let me fundamentally change you. Paul says, that's who I was, but it's not who I am any longer. Now it's me. You want to know who I am? I'm the one who wants to do what's right. I see the struggle. I'm fighting the battle, and I lose sometimes, but I want to do what's right. I love the law of God. In my inner being, I want to please God. I want to live for God's glory. I want to be honoring to Him in everything I do, and yet I know that's not always true in my life. The Christian gets used to saying this, I love God's law and I hate what I just did. That's the Christian's cry. Which is why verse 23, look at this. He says, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This battle is real. This conflict, by the way, doesn't prove, like some people want to assume, that you're not saved. This genuine conflict in the, the soul, the heart of an individual is actually evidence that you are saved. You follow me? An unbeliever doesn't wrestle with their sin like this. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says this. He says, the Christian faces inner turmoil precisely because he is a mature and ever-growing saint. The greater and more influential the presence of transforming grace in his heart, the greater and more intensely painful the lingering reality of sin will prove to be. 
He says, whereas a life immersed in sin anesthetizes the soul, rendering it increasingly incapable of feeling genuine conviction, a life in tune with the Holy Spirit and devoted to the supremacy of God's glory is ever more sensitive to even the least degree of sin committed. Do you hear what he's saying? Here's what he's saying, Christian. He's saying, listen, if you're a baby Christian, you see your sin and you hate your sin, but listen, that feeling never goes away. Actually, the more mature you get, the more godly you get, the more that feeling is intensified because the more you grow grow in godliness, the more sin you actually see in your life. And the more, the more, the more you see your sin, the more you hate your sin, and the more you long to be freed from this sin. So why is this here? It's here to remind us, listen, that the struggle between the flesh and the spirit is an ongoing one. And that we cannot fight or win in our own strength. Church, this is so important because we so often do this. And the fact that you're aware of the struggle in your soul, this is you today. You're like, I'm deeply aware of this struggle, Ian. I get this. This is a good sign for you. This means that the Spirit of God more than likely is dwelling within you. To not be aware of this would be to be dead, to be dumb, or to be deceived. And neither one of those is good. This experience is not ideal, listen, Christian, but it is reality and it's not meant to justify our sin. It's meant to help us fight sin. And I, I know how you feel when you, when you read this even. I know for many of you, this has been a passage you go to over and over again because the struggle against sin can often feel crushing and defeating. It's discouraging. And we're not to live in defeat. We're not. As Christians, we're not to live in defeat. But let me just remind you, no one lives in 100% victory this side of eternity. Nobody. We should never settle with sin. We should fight and that's part of the point. You see, this is what Paul is doing. This passage, understanding this reality, keeps us dependent, and it keeps our hope in the right place. It keeps us looking finally and quickly to the imminent deliverance of my Savior. You see, the ongoing problem of sin we experience should drive us towards the promise of salvation that's to come. Paul's conclusion when he looks at his sin and himself is, is this. It's staggering. Listen to what he says in verse 24. He sees this battle and listen to his heart's cry. Wretched man that I am. Now some have said, if Paul's really saved, how can Paul say that statement, wretched man that I am? And my, listen, my response to that is if Paul is really saved, how can he not say that statement? How could he not? How can we not, who, 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 know, right, who know the power of God within us, who know the good news of the gospel, who know saving grace, and yet go to battle with sin every day, how can we not cry out like Paul right here, wretched man that I am? In other words, God, I know I'm not worthy of salvation. I know that sin still remains. I know, Lord, that I keep on failing. Some of you are still not convinced. You're like, Paul should never talk like that about himself. Listen, take it up with Paul, okay? Doesn't Paul know that he's a saint, not a sinner? Of course he knows. Paul is helping us to avoid the pitfall of Christian perfectionism and Christian idealism, and he's teaching us about Christian realism. Maybe some of you have bought into the heretical lie that you can be perfect this side of heaven. I've had people tell me that they don't sin anymore. I'm, I'm not kidding. I've had Christians tell me they don't need to repent because they don't sin anymore. And to that, I want to respond, I think I smell burning. 
I think your pants are on fire. It is a real possibility for Christians to give into the flesh. In fact, Paul in Galatians, we don't have to turn there, but I just want to remind you, Paul in Galatians gives us an account of when he came alongside Pope Peter and rebuked him to his face. That was a joke, by the way. We don't believe Peter's the Pope, just in case you're visiting. He talks about a time, listen, Peter saved. As a Christian, Peter, the rock upon which the church is built. Peter, the dominant apostle in the early church, in the early, the one who stood up on Pentecost and preached, and 3,000 people got saved. Paul says later on, he had to come alongside Peter and rebuke him because he was reverting back into following the law instead of living in the gospel. Isn't that staggering? So Christian, like, if this is a struggle you find yourself having, can I just encourage, you're in good company. Peter had reverted back to living in the flesh and not by the Spirit. He reverted to living back under law and he was subverting the gospel. And this is where we always find ourselves, this side of eternity, hopefully not frequently, with, with decreasing frequency, but we find ourselves crying out with Paul, wretched man that I am. Paul is describing the reality of the frustration that takes place in the Christian heart. He's not describing complete moral failure. He's not describing some kind of disqualification from ministry as if we we never obey or we never grow. He's not describing that at all. You see, our experience isn't as bad as it could be, but it's not as good as it should be. And it's frustrating that we want to obey perfectly, but in this life we cannot. And it causes us to cry out this statement, who will deliver me from this body of death? You hear that? When is this going to end? You ever feel like that? Am I alone here? Like, I'm like, God, when is this going to end? I hate sin. I hate it so much. I hate that I keep sinning. I hate that I can't be as godly as I want to be. I hate it. I hate it with an increasing passion. And every time I fall, and every time I think sin is going to actually do what it promises to do for me, it's going to be satisfying. It's going to be enjoyable. I hate it all the more, and I can't believe I did it. And I go back to God, and I declare to God, I agree with God, God, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And the only answer that can come is simply this thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope we have. There is a day coming, loved ones, this is so good. There's a day coming when, when, when we will be, listen, we will die and we will be resurrected to a new body like that of Jesus Christ. And we will live, listen, in an existence where there will be no more sin, not the presence of sin outside of us, not the presence of sin within us, no sin ever again, only and always perfect obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, only and always perfect praise to the Lord Jesus Christ, only and always, listen, hearts that love God with a deep affection and actions that obey God with an abiding affection. There are three quick things. I'm going to end on this. Three things we need to do in response to this. First, if you're not a believer, you've heard the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ today. Repent of your sins. Embrace him by faith. And receive this day everlasting life and joy. 
Don't come expecting that there's not going to be any more battle in your heart. There is. But come knowing this, there will be victory. Christian, three things first. Honest confession. You know what you can do today? Just, just honestly confess that this is who you are. This is your struggle. This is real for you. We need to be a people, listen, who don't hide behind the mask of self-righteousness. Enough of that kind of Christianity. Enough of that kind of playing church. We don't walk into this place and pretend like we have everything together. We walk into this place, listen, knowing that we don't and that we're loved and accepted still. Honest confession about who you are in your relationships. Honest confession about what you're struggling with. Secondly, do this, humble repentance. Here's the thing, we can confess this because we know we can keep running back to God and saying, God, forgive me. I'm still struggling. I'm a work in progress. I need your mercy and grace today. I need your spirit to be working in my heart today. I need you. And by the way, humble repentance, not just before God, but with one another. This is how we cultivate the kind of spirit-filled church that we're called to be. Let me give you one last one, hopeful endurance. Hopeful endurance. See, this passage is not to discourage us, it's to fill our hearts with hope. Remember, Romans 8 starts with this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The presence, of the power of sin is destroyed forever, one day soon. But even now, listen, even now, we can gain increasing victory, not by living according to the flesh, but by living according to the Spirit of God. That's what Paul's going to get into in Romans chapter 8. Church, listen to this. The final victory is his. And in this victory we stand. He has set us free in Christ and will one day set us free completely from this body of death. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the struggle that we experience even now. God, we thank you for it because it reminds us, Lord, that you are indeed at work within us, that you're so faithful to save us and to give us your spirit so that we now hate sin and we want to honor you and we love your law. But God, thank you that it pushes us not only to, to walk the manner of the Spirit, it pushes us, Lord, to look to you for the future deliverance, Lord, reminded that one day you and you alone will be responsible for eradicating this struggle entirely. And so even now we can praise you. Even now we can declare there is hope in you. And even now we can declare that your victory is our victory. We stand in the victory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.